0: Welcome! Pull up a seat, grab a cup, and get ready to share, listen, and learn. This is my favorite coffee story with your host, Aniko Somoji. You'll hear about the stories about coffee itself, the history, health benefits, recipes, and more, along with some personal stories inspired by coffee and the lifestyle. Now, here is Aniko Somoji.
1: Welcome to our listeners. We are together sharing favorite coffee stories, and we're delighted you've joined us. We um, have a wonderful guest today, Stephen Roach from Seattle, and we're delighted he's joining us. And before I introduce Stephen... I always enjoy giving a quick Onicona Farm update and what's going on in the farm. Uh, I always feel like our listeners are right there with us here on the farm. We had a very relaxing week with family. Uh, we have been getting ready for our next harvest. The, the trees are looking great. I think it's going to be a wonderful harvest. We thought... In um, sharing our coffee stories on My Favorite Coffee Story, we do something special today. We would actually offer a little gift to a listener who might want to share a favorite coffee story. So I thought I would ask if a person could or said orders at Anicona a quick favorite coffee story. We'll be delighted to send you a delicious bag of Kona coffee to celebrate that you were the first person to email in a story. You can email a story, but you can also go to our website, myfavoritecoffeestory.com, and share a coffee story as well there. So that's a special little thing we thought we'd do in celebrating our radio show. And today we're going to be talking about The Rise of Coffee Culture. And Stephen Roach is joining us from Seattle. And we're so delighted. And we'd like to welcome Stephen. Stephen was really on the front lines um, in the early days when coffee was evolving in the 80s. On the front lines of Folgers and also Kauai coffee fields. Um, And we are delighted to actually welcome Stephen today. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me.
2: I am really looking forward to sharing some of what I learned back in the 80s and 90s about coffee and the change in the coffee culture in America.
1: Fantastic. Well, we thought we'd actually share a little bit in the 80s. Uh, Stephen, you mentioned that you ended up getting an espresso coffee machine. Um, It shows a little bit your love for coffee. Tell me a little bit how that evolved and some of your early days of your career.
2: Well, if you go back... To my high school days when a lot of people start drinking coffee particularly today and we can talk later about how that wasn't necessarily the case back in the 70s and 80s uh, I didn't drink coffee I was a diet Pepsi drinker that was my caffeine delivery vehicle of choice and I would power any all-nighters at school with Viverin and so even the idea of coffee um, wasn't that attractive to me early on but I had a friend And his older sister spent a year in Italy and came back from her year in Italy as a high school student on the AFS program and brought home with her this absolutely stunning, gorgeous, copper-clad espresso machine. And to say that I had never seen anything quite like it is to understate just how uh, much of a marvel this machine was. And so I saw her making this espresso concept, and of course, you know, being in the, the 80s, nobody knew what espresso was in America, or very few people. And, uh, and I got to try it, and it was transformative. And frankly, it would, it's one of those things that you don't necessarily want to have espresso as your first coffee drink, because then if you have to go back in the 1980s and drink coffee out of a can, like Folgers, it's so disappointing. <laughs> so this was a uh, true revelation, like, wow, this is incredible. Um, but I still mostly stuck to my Diet Pepsi. Drinking in those days, and it wasn't until I had gotten out of college uh, that I really that the transformation was permanent. Because I was uh, working at Procter and Gamble in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I was working on the Folgers coffee brand, which was owned at the time by P and G. And on the Folgers coffee brand, my role was owning all of the promotions and uh, radio marketing, so coupons, rebates anything like that related to Folgers Coffee. So you'd be shocked to hear this, but out of 15 people who I worked with on this brand team for Folgers Coffee, I was the only one who actually drank coffee. Wow. Nobody else. I, it was Even today, I look back at that and I think that's just crazy that they had all these people working on Folgers Coffee, trying to market it, sell it, um, reinvent it. And All they thought about was that, uh, as as we like to talk about at the brand, was that the Folgers coffee just wasn't actually all that good. And so one of the the most interesting parts of my time there, and there was lots of interesting um, aspects of my time at Folgers, was that down the hall, they had a coffee uh, tasting room because it was the trading desk for the largest trading operation in the world for coffee was down the hall from me. And that's where they did all the buying for Folgers Coffee, which was the number one coffee uh, brand in America at the time. And, of course, this was all before Starbucks, before Pete's really took off. And so one of the things that I got to do, which was just um, really special, was that I got to learn how to cup coffee. And as you know, being in the coffee business and, and being a grower, cupping coffee is super important as you're growing the beans and you're drying them and you're roasting them to really understand the flavor profile of the bean. Yes. Well, I was, I was given an opportunity to cup coffee, and they said, we're going to start with the really low-grade coffee, Stephen, and then we're going to get to go to the highest-grade coffee, and you're going to see what it's like as the coffee flavor changes. And we started with the with a really lowest-grade Robusta coffee beans, and honestly, it tasted like burnt rubber. And <laughs> you're, su- <laughs> you're supposed to spit coffee out when you're doing cupping, let me just say, it was not that hard to convince me to spit the coffee out. So then the next. And then what did, go ahead.
1: No, go ahead. I was just wondering, Stephen, um, when you started venturing along the higher quality cupping project, you could really definitely tell the difference going from the Robusta to the maybe higher end coffee.
2: When you got to the Arabica beans, you could really immediately taste the flavor profile changing when you get to the highest quality Arabica beans that they were buying from some of the best farms in the world at the time, oh, Anico, as you know, when you get really great coffee, how much different it tastes. And quite honestly, when I drank Anacona Farms coffee for the first time, it is one of the few times that it recalls for me back to drinking some of the best beans. And, you know, it's it's not unlike wine and or tea, when you really drink the best beans, it really is a remarkable difference in terms of the quality.
1: Well, definitely. When you were then working on the Folgers account, how did you come up with your strategy to promote Folgers?
2: (laughs) Well, that's a great question. One of the things (laughs) that we did, which I thought was so fascinating, and I, I did not come up with this notion, but the idea was, can Folgers own the morning? So that when you wake up in the morning, You think about coffee, because most people, that's their first thing they do during the day is they drink their cup of coffee. Can we own that in the sense that can people think only of Folgers Coffee when they wake up? And so we had a strategy called Own the Morning. And what was interesting is, of course, the jingle that most people remember from the early days of Folgers Coffee was it's the best part of waking up. If I didn't have a terrible singing voice, I'd sing it for you, (laughs) but I don't want to ruin your day. But it is a really... (laughs) It's a wonderful, catchy jingle. Um, and it, it is something that, that really changed the Folgers' uh, business, and that's how they became the number one coffee uh, in the country at the time. And again, this was before the days of Starbucks, who so think back to when it was Maxwell House, Hills Brothers, Sanka, Folgers. I don't know if you remember those days, but man, it was just dominated by those brands.
1: I I do remember those days. Uh, It sounds like those days were really fun and interesting. What was it like working at Procter & Gamble?
2: It was one of those things that that, um, really I only appreciate looking back at just how much of an influence we had. Uh, One of the things that was fun was I rewrote the copy that is written on the back of a Folgers coffee can uh, back in the very early 90s. And it begins since James A. Folgers began roasting coffee in San Francisco in, I think it was 19-something, 63 or something. Um, And then it went on from there. I rewrote that copy because it needed to be updated and uh, freshened up. And I then was able to take my friends or my family into any grocery store in America, and really any grocery store, any bodega, any convenience store, and I could show them a can of Folgers and say, that's the copy that I wrote. It was really everywhere. And so being on that brand just meant how much influence you had in terms of the the daily habits of literally millions of Americans. And it's something that we took very, very seriously, but I also think back and I realize, uh, and I know we'll talk about this a little bit, is just how much we missed in terms of the, the way the underlying culture was changing and we were still so focused on getting people to drink more Folgers that we missed out on the fact that people really wanted to make that shift away from the coffee in a can, which most people would make with a brewed coffee maker or a uh, percolator.
1: Right. That, um, that time at Folgers, you were really there at the front lines of coffee culture in America. That's fascinating. How did you end up then venturing over to Kauai and Kauai coffee fields?
2: That's a great question. It was several years later, um, and it was just one of those things where the Folgers coffee experience yeah, was my first job out of college, and so it was very formative for me. And then I went uh, back to business school, and the first job I had after that was in a management consulting firm. And my first um, uh, consulting engagement, they said, "There is a uh, coffee company excuse me, a coffee plantation, in Hawaii." that needs help figuring out how they can do a better job of uh, improving the productivity of their field and selling more of their coffee, Um, not just in Hawaii, but to try to get a national footprint. And based upon my uh, experience at Folgers, I became a natural person to join that team. We go to Kauai, and I don't know if you've seen those um, fields in Kauai, Anika, but they are stunning. They are these perfectly manicured coffee trees that that just roll down the hills into the ocean with the waves lapping up against the cliffs right at the edge of where the the last coffee tree is planted. And it's just stunning. If you think about uh, pictures you may have seen of tea plantations in China, it's just like that.
1: That's beautiful. Well, and th- what's interesting is that you were working on the Folgers account, and now you're actually transitioning and sort of being part of coffee culture that's becoming a little bit more connected to the farmer, the grower. Tell us how that was going.
2: And what a neat transformation that is. And Annika, I think that is something that continues even today. And in fact, I would say that's something that's only going to become more important in some ways. Island Coffee Company in Kauai was at the very leading edge of that. Of course, there were the um, coffee plantations on Kona, or in Kona, I should say, on the Big Island. But the, um, the idea that you had these, um, uh, what would you call it, the, the specific um, origins of coffee was something that really wasn't uh, very common back then. So if you think about wine, you might have a Pinot Noir or a Cabernet Sauvignon or a uh, uh, Zinfandel. That wasn't the same in uh, coffee. There was a little bit that, that uh, the Big Island had done by making Kona coffee, obviously special, but the, in terms of really coming to a, um, this, this concept of origin of the coffee was brand new. And so that was something that we could really um, work with, which was to say, could we talk about Kauai coffee as something special because it's grown in a certain area that has volcanic soils at a certain elevation with certain temperature that then created a better bean. And of course, what we planted uh, in Kauai was the Arabica bean. And so you already started with a much higher quality bean. And so that almost immediately gave it a superior flavor profile to anything you could buy at the time in a U.S. grocery store. As I know that you are are aware of just how much better uh, Hawaiian coffee is than the typical at the time coffee that you would get in a <clears throat> vacuum-packed can, like the Maxwell House or Folgers. So that was something that was really special, was to be able to start with a much better product, because when you have a better product, you have a much easier time selling that product uh, to the uh, consumer. So that was where we started, and that was what we were trying to accomplish, is how do you make this into something much bigger? And the, the starting at the farm itself, that was a, a, something that was relatively new.
1: That, that definitely was. So uh, around what time was this? Is this kind of sort of close to late 80s, 1990s?
2: This was the early to mid-90s that this really started. Okay. They had originally planted those fields, though, in the late 80s. So we were coming in after a few years of that they had had already of growing the beans and uh, doing their initial sales.
1: Yes. Well, with Folgers, uh what a transformation as you're seeing how they're still sort of with Maxwell House, Folgers, but now you're on the cusp of seeing how some of these specialty coffees are coming on into the market for consumers. Uh, We can't wait to talk a little bit more with you, Stephen, about Rise of Coffee Culture in America and specialty coffee and Starbucks right when we come back. So listeners, please uh, can't wait for you to join us when we Return from the break. Thanks for being with
2: us. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
0: My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Kona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona story coffee special today.
2: You with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time,
0: 5 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You are listening to my favorite coffee story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at onicona.com. Now, back to this week's show.
1: Welcome back to My Favorite Coffee Story. We're talking about rise of coffee culture in America with our special guest, Stephen Roach, who's in Seattle. We were just talking about how Stephen was on the front lines when Folgers was... Um, Sort of in the forefront of coffee and Maxwell House, et cetera. And Stephen worked at PNG on that account. And Stephen actually saw a, a little bit how the rise of coffee culture happened in America and how we sort of started launching into specialty coffee with Starbucks in the 1970s. Stephen, tell us a little bit about how that evolved, please.
2: Well, that's, it really goes back to a gentleman named Alfred Peet who you may have heard of in in your um, background in coffee. But Alfred Peet was the founder of Peet's Coffee. And what he is known for in uh, the coffee history in America is that he introduced the concept of roasting the highest quality beans possible and then making the best coffee. And if you think back, this was 1960s um, when everyone was still drinking kind of post-World War II rationed coffee. So, really not the best coffee. This was not even quite the Folgers and Maxwell House. This was more regional brands that that didn't taste even as good as those two. And so this concept of very high-quality beans roasted and, and then brewed shortly after roasting and grinding was a new idea. Well, what's interesting about Alfred Peet is that he founded Peet's Coffee in Berkeley, California. What he then did is essentially he launched the revolution in coffee that happened in the late 80s, and then, of course, the 90s through to today, which is that he taught the original founders of Starbucks, three gentlemen, he taught them how to select, roast, and grind the best beans and to make better coffee with that. Those three gentlemen founded Starbucks Coffee at Pike Place Market in Seattle, my new hometown, and he did that uh, back in 19... somewhere in the 1970s. Since then, Starbucks went from having that one store in Pike Place Market, which if you've ever been, you cannot get into that store. The line out the door is so long. People taking selfies and pictures and ordering coffee there. Of course, it's the exact same Starbucks that you can get a block away in Seattle, but being able to buy it at the original store is such a special um, connection with Starbucks that you can't even get in the store. And they went from that single store to where they now have 25,000 plus stores all over the world today. And so Alfred Peet, who founded Peet's Coffee, basically created the competitor that has absolutely dominated the market since then. And it's that story that goes all the way back to understanding in that period of time when people were really drinking um, mediocre coffee, that, you know what, there's an opportunity to change the way people drink coffee in America.
1: Definitely. I noticed that in 1982, the Specialty Coffee Association... Um, came on and um, was sort of the association that would ensure that there were certain um, you know coffee standards and cupping standards and quality standards and I do think that specialty coffee association is very sort of reflective of how specialty coffee was coming on the market and Starbucks what I, I was kind of doing a little research it was fascinating that maybe their first, uh, shop was in the 1970s in Seattle. It wasn't until uh, 1994 that they actually opened up their first New York uh, Starbucks, which is which is fascinating because New York actually has an interesting, element to the history of coffee in America. And um, I was doing a little bit of research. And of course, you know, tea was something that was very um, predominant for America in the 1770s. And then eventually coffee came on. But uh, first, Coffee was used more as a medicinal purpose. It was very expensive. Not everyone could access it. But I actually kind of tracked down that there was the first coffee roaster in in New York City in 1793. And they were actually selling some of their beans to taverns and hotels, which is fascinating. And during those times, those damp... Um, ships were bringing over green coffee over to America and the mustiness and the dampness didn't always, I think, promote quality in coffee, but it did evolve after that. And um, Gillies Coffee in um, is I guess they claim that they're the oldest coffee merchant from the 1840s in in uh, New York. And just kind of the rise of coffee culture is fascinating, Stephen, when you think about how um, Mr. Gillies, uh, I believe his name was Wright Gillies. He was from Scotland and he had this little tea and coffee shop in New York. And uh, he ended up in 1843 actually uh, harnessing up horses to sort of power his coffee roaster. And then eventually, of course, he came up with a gas powered coffee roaster. But it was just fascinating to look into how coffee culture did evolve in America and how actually Starbucks, while it did start in Seattle, they did eventually make it to New York um, and the interesting thing about Howard Schultz uh, how he then I guess in the maybe the late 1980s had he, he had acquired Starbucks he was very inspired by one of his trips to Italy and had some espresso drinks from that and that really inspired him I guess forward going with Starbucks in the 1980s uh, tell us a little bit more about how you saw Starbucks evolve and what made them so successful?
2: I will do that, but I'm going to first mention this little story, which is really neat and goes back to your concept of the New York coffee drinking culture, which started with pretty bad beans. One of the things that's funny that I learned when I was at Folgers is that different parts of the country drink their coffee drink uh, differently, their brewed coffee. And so back in the 70s and 80s, it was very well known that if you were living in the Northeast, which included, of course, New York City, you always used cream and sugar. Whereas if you lived in the South, you'd use primarily sugar. And if you lived on the West Coast, you would drink your coffee black. And the reason is that the, the coffee itself on the East Coast, and particularly the Northeast, was really of such poor quality that the cream and sugar was the only way you could actually get it down. Whereas on the West Coast, they started, had started that appreciation for better beans make better coffee, that they were willing to drink it as a, a, a cup of black coffee. And it's just such a funny concept to see how these uh, habits and patterns develop, and it's really because the coffee just didn't taste that good in the Northeast. Um, in any case, going back to, to uh, Starbucks, we were, um, it was early 1990s, and I was tasked with trying to figure out how to get young adults to drink more coffee because one of the trends that the Specialty Coffee Association, which Folgers was actually one of the largest contributors at the time to, if you can believe it, um, had figured, had realized was that young people simply weren't drinking coffee. They were drinking soda. And the reason is that back in the, the 60s and 70s, when soda really became a, um, a very, very common drink that was available and cheap enough for people to buy, you would start drinking soda at age 10, 11, 12, and that became the way you got your caffeine. So that by the time that my generation was uh, getting into their 20s in, in the 1980s and 90s, At that point, more people were drinking soda by far than coffee, and really, young people weren't drinking coffee because you already had a caffeine delivery vehicle, and you never kind of got that opportunity to develop a palate for coffee, and so they just weren't drinking coffee. So Starbucks comes along in the the late 80s and early 90s, and this is, I'm working on this project even before Starbucks gets to New York in 1994, and I look at Starbucks and I said, wait a minute. They are figuring out a new way of getting people to drink coffee. And the the interesting thing about it is that they were using the latte as that entry point. And anyone who's drunk a latte can tell you is it has coffee in it, but it really tastes more like coffee-flavored milk than it does like just a little bit of cream in a cup of coffee. It's a much different flavor profile. Well, it turns out that that's the flavor profile that really took over America in the early 90s. And the latte was the number one seller for Starbucks. And the grande latte was, not by a little bit, the most profitable drink that Starbucks sold in every single Starbucks. And you would, I I don't remember the numbers, but the profitability of a grande latte was really impressive. And so Starbucks introduces young adults for the first time to coffee. And that changes everything.
1: That's fascinating. So it sounds like at that point, Stephen, you may have transitioned from your diet Pepsi (laughs) that you used to drink a little bit now to, um, did you drink a latte or what did you like at Starbucks at the time?
2: Oh, I was absolutely a latte drinker. Absolutely. And then the other thing that I discovered, Annika, was the, um, the Americano, which was, essentially a brewed cup of coffee, but using espresso rather than ground coffee that gets run through a filter. And that really was such a different flavor than the brewed coffee that I felt, I mean, I cannot tell you, I'm an early 20s guy thinking how sophisticated I am, impressing all the girls with the fact that I can, you know, order a, an Americano when I go out to, uh, to order coffee. But I saw in this whole phenomenon back then, which I know many people realized quickly, is that this was going to change the coffee culture. And at the time, Folgers was still stuck in the idea that the future of coffee is uh, selling it in more places with a slightly different form factor and um, maybe adding some flavor to the, to the ground coffee. And that's something that simply wasn't nearly as revolutionary as what Starbucks was doing. And I've heard, and you may know this as well, and I've shared it with your listeners, but I have heard that there are over 87,000 drink combinations that you can order in any given Starbucks store, 87,000. And so if you think about all the different ways that you can order coffee, you can have different flavors, you can have mochas, you can have uh, sugar-free vanilla, you can have different sweeteners added, you can have different size. You can even order coffee at a very specific temperature, at 120 degrees, for instance. So there's 87,000 ways that you can drink coffee in a Starbucks. Well, that changes the world because there are not 87,000 ways to drink Folger's coffee. Um, so that was a big, big part of how that transformation started happening. And of course, I, had, I think the last time I drank a Diet Pepsi might have been in 1991.
1: <laughs> well, the, um, with Starbucks... They also were very good about providing a nice venue for people to actually come, have a meeting, uh, meet with their friends, uh, share some stories, and they just had a really nice environment, which... I think was also attractive to people so you could have your combination of your latte but you also had a very nice place to relax and sit and work etc which which leads me to an interesting story uh, I promised our listeners we'd talk about how that notion of taking a coffee break give yourself a coffee break how that evolved in America and it's, it's a funny thing how we still think about that. Oh, take a coffee break. Let's take a break. But in the 1950s, there were ads at that time that actually were promoting you deserve a, a break, a coffee break. Take a coffee break. And in the, um, there's a really fun ad you can even see to this day uh, from the Saturday Evening Post. Give yourself a coffee break is sort of the title. Coffee always gives you a break. That's what the ad says. And then there are little captions. Think better. uh, Feel better. Work better. And it was in sort of like the 1950s that people started realizing, wow, it's okay to take a break. And I do think that Starbucks did a great job in, you know, sort of celebrating taking a moment sharing things at a Starbucks meeting there, uh, a little bit playing off of you deserve a coffee break. Uh, do you, did you happen to notice some things around this coffee break concept that, that sort of led into Starbucks
0: success?
2: Well, I have always been such a big fan of, of the way Harold Howard Schultz talks about what you're saying because you are absolutely right. The concept of a of a coffee break, the concept of, of a coffee meeting house, actually, um, if you go all the way back to the beginnings of the Enlightenment in Western Europe, there are some people who say that it is coffee that gave us the Enlightenment. That essentially coffee was what got us out of the Middle Ages. Because before that, of course, everybody just drank beer. And beer is not necessarily a great uh, beverage to get people to, you know, engage and, and be intellectually stimulated, whereas Quite literally, caffeine is a stimulant. And so these, this concept of having this coffee break and, and having this caffeine really did help people to, to raise their, their, um, their game. And so with what Howard saw with that, you have your home, your work, and with Starbucks, you now have your third place. And I can attest to the fact that I love going to Starbucks and just hanging out, reading a book, doing work, meeting people. I probably have a minimum of three meetings a week in our Starbucks that's in our building where I say, hey, let's just go downstairs and grab a coffee and quite literally in the store. And so I think that's a really important part of the the culture that Starbucks has in a sense kind of reintroduced back into America. And then I look at my children and as you know, I have triplets who are 18 years old and my girls, their favorite place to study and, and hang out with their friends on a weekend was at Starbucks. And they would go down to our local Starbucks, which was just a few blocks away. They would walk down with their books, and they could stay there for three, four, five hours getting their homework done. And they would drink usually tea or a latte. I don't know that any, any of my children have had a cup of, of full strength brewed coffee, but they have all sorts of other drinks that they take advantage of at a Starbucks. And so, unlike me, drinking diet Pepsi and pulling all nighters using Vivarin, which is an awful way to, to uh, get caffeine. My children have discovered and and are really embraced the idea of the the coffee house. And I I just couldn't agree with you more of how important that has been to changing our culture, not just in terms of coffee drinking, but really in terms of how we build relationships and relate with each other, if that makes sense.
1: Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Stephen, we... We are excited to continue chatting with you, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about maybe sort of what's in store with uh, maybe future trends for coffee, and uh, thank you for our listeners for being with us, and we look forward to continue our conversation right after the break. Please come back.
2: stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time the number 1 internet talk station where your opinion counts. Voiceamerica.com.
0: My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Ani Kona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So, from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Kona story coffee special today.
2: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
0: You are listening to my favorite coffee story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anicona.com. Now, back to this week's show.
1: Welcome back to My Favorite Coffee Story. We are chatting with Stephen Roach about rise of coffee culture in America. And we were just talking about how how Starbucks um, really evolved in the 70s all the way through the 80s and how they had um, tremendous success in providing a lot of different options in their stores and different uh, variations of coffee for people, let alone providing a wonderful place to hang out and meet and and. Just uh, relax. And now I think we're going to go into talking about some of the more current trends for coffee and talking about coffee culture today, which is fascinating with Stephen Roach. How would you describe today's coffee culture, Stephen?
2: I would say we are just in the midst of really fully realizing what I think coffee culture can become. And if you want a good idea of what that looks like. I think part of it comes from the way coffee is sold and consumed and appreciated in Europe. And when you travel to Europe, if you've been fortunate enough to go to Italy or France or um, Switzerland, Austria, so many of these countries, uh, Spain, really have such a strong uh, coffee bar um, culture, an espresso bar. And one of my favorite things to do when I visit Europe is to wake up early in the morning, head down out of my hotel and find the local espresso bar and I can only speak a little bit of French and none of the other languages, and so everything that comes off as as a um, using my fingers and, and the best I can trying to uh, to speak the language, but invariably you just see other locals in the bar, you just go right up and you order your espresso or your Uh, Doppio or whatever other drink you want, your latte, and it is just such a special part of of my traveling through Europe. And I think about the United States, and we're kind of transitioning more and more to that as our culture. On top of that, I think there are some other trends that are really even more forward-looking around what we've been talking about in terms of single-origin coffees, Uh, and even such things as fair trade coffee, organic coffee, coffee that makes sure that when you think about it back to the farm, going back to the earliest part of our conversation with Island Coffee Company in Kauai, when you really know where your coffee's coming from and that the family that is farming the coffee is getting paid a, a fair wage and they're not swimming in, in chemicals to, to make sure that they, um, they keep the weeds down and, and are fertilizing the plant when these are organic, you really are starting to talk about getting the absolute best coffee. And that's something that I think is going to continue to, to grow and change over time as we become more picky in our coffee and start thinking about it more like the best, highest quality wines and less like the coffee that you might find in a Folgers or a Maxwell House can, which I think we've really, as a society and a culture, grown very much uh, away from.
1: Well, we appreciate certainly how you helped coffee culture Evolve. Um, It sounds like you're describing what people say today is third wave coffee, Um, which would be interesting. People kind of say, okay, first wave was sort of growing coffee consumption a little bit, second wave is in the enjoyment of specialty coffee. Please tell us a little bit about, a little bit more about third wave coffee as people talk about that today.
2: Well, I think a big part of it is I just love that concept because it does absolutely feel like there's a, a sense of change in the way we think about coffee, I think Anacona coffee, as an example, is right in that trend. One of the things that I discovered very recently, and I, I'm embarrassed to say it as recently as I did, because it's been an option for how you prepare coffee for a long time, but it's called the pour-over method. And my first cup of coffee was out of a percolator. That's how we made coffee growing up in my house, and that's probably why I never really liked it much and, and chose Diet Pepsi, because a percolator... All it does is run water through grounds. Most often the coffee grounds themselves started out not being really high-grade coffee, and then you keep running hot water through these grounds, and then the more you run the water through, the worse the coffee is. You're getting all the bitterness and and the really awful flavors at the very end. Well, a pour-over is exactly the opposite. What you do is you take the absolute best coffee you can afford, you grind it right at the moment, you put it into a filter, a very small filter, and you pour hot water that's the perfect temperature for those particular beans, and you create what I have to tell you is the best cup of coffee. Frankly, to me anyway, even better than espresso. And seeing how people are starting to do that, and it's something that is available at Starbucks, but honestly I don't see that many people utilizing. But if you go into a Starbucks and order a pour-over, you will get the best coffee of your life, and you need to to ask them for the best uh, beans, but it is so flavorful and rich. And typically it comes from smaller farms that create better coffee. And what Starbucks is doing now in terms of really making sure that they, these farms are getting fair pay and that they're, they're not abusing the land but really figuring out how to grow coffee in a highly sustainable way, I think it's incredibly exciting.
1: Very exciting. How were you introduced to the pour-over-brewing method?
2: It is a, I'm not going to remember the name of it, unfortunately, which I wish I could because I certainly want to give them credit, but it was a uh, coffee store in San Francisco. And there was a line out the door, and across the street was a Starbucks, and there was no line at all. And I thought, geez, I need to understand what it is about this coffee store that has a line when the coffee store um, that I'm most familiar with doesn't have one. So I got in line, and when I got to the front of the line, what you see is this, 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 on the countertop, five, six, eight individual coffee pouring um, devices that allows you to get the pour over. And each of them was getting, the the customers was getting the exact coffee they wanted, and it was being brewed the minute they ordered it. And when I saw that, I got so excited. I tried it. I loved it. And then I heard that Starbucks actually offered that, but it's just not something many people know. And so in my local uh, Starbucks, of course, one of the great things about this concept of a third place is that the baristas actually know me and they know my name. They know my order. I can walk in and they start making the order before I'm even at the front of the line so that it's ready to go when I uh, purchase it. That, that then becomes something very, very special, which is that relationship with the, the barista themselves who's making this perfect cup of coffee just for you.
1: That's so true. That that just brings the whole experience to that special level. When when you're at home on the weekends, are you finding that you um, you have nice family favorite coffee moments together? Um, I know that your wife is a wonderful coffee aficionado. So um, how does that typically go for like a, a early morning where you're you're kind of waking up together and having some coffee together?
2: Well, it you know what's so funny? There's the weekday and the weekend. The weekday, we actually use the Nespresso machine, which I'm sure you and your listeners have heard of, which are the little capsules that make a perfect cup of coffee. Uh, And it it is very easy to use and very convenient. And we love our Nespresso machine, have had one for, I think, four or five years now. And in fact, have had, I think we're on our third machine, um, having kind of burned through the first two. And so we love that. That's That's a simple way to make coffee early in the morning And then we drink it, and we typically will sit just at our little kitchen table and drink our coffee, have our early morning conversation, and then head off in different directions for the day. On weekends, though, that's when we can take the time to grind, um, put in a filter, make the pour over, take the coffee outside to our table, and as you know, Seattle in the summer is glorious. A little rainy for much of the year, but for those two months of the summer, it is such a... Um, glorious thing to be able to sit outside on the patio and drink our coffee together. It's just such a, a important part of my, you know, day-to-day living.
1: Those are favorite coffee stories, definitely, I can imagine. And I, I know that you just have been settling into your new home there in Seattle. How's your settling in process going?
2: Well, you know, one of the best parts of this new house is the kitchen. And one of the best parts of the kitchen is that we're so fortunate that we have a kitchen that opens right up onto this patio, and you can sit down at this table. And my children said this weekend something that just really um, gave me goosebumps. They said, Dad, when we sit out here on a day like today, it's like sitting in Provence. And I thought, well, that is perfect. So is it going well? I couldn't be happier with our new house. It's just we feel so, so lucky. Um, And as you know, we're now empty nesters, so being able to live in a place that is comfortable and really feels like home is is terrific. Knowing that your children love it that much makes it even that much more special.
1: Well, and it's so nice when they come home from college, you know, it's so nice that they can come home to such a lovely home and family. Um, I if I may chat a little bit about your gardens because I could just picture you sitting out there on your patio and um, I, I please correct me if I'm mistaken, but I believe you've actually uh, worked on some of the gardens in your previous homes to make them feel like they almost have a little bit of a a Japanese uh, feel to them with some of the textures of the plants, etc. How How is this garden as you're sitting out in the patio?
2: Well, you know, our last uh, house, we built a uh, garden or we refurbished the garden in a way that we had layers of green and gray, and so the, the garden had this very zen feeling that was very modern, definitely very Japanese, with these beautiful grasses and that were different colors of, uh, uh, of green, and then actually all the way to a color that almost was black in, in its intensity and richness, and you could sit out on a basalt bench that we had installed and just drink your coffee in the morning sun, and it was so tranquil. Well, our new house is uh, a Georgian style house. It's a brick house. And so it has a very different feel. And so this is a feel where you really want more of that English garden. So you have hydrangeas and you have other plants that are much more evocative of of that kind of more relaxed, natural uh, garden. And so it's a very different feel. um, But I I love it just as much. And in fact, there's a part of me that even appreciates it more because it does feel a little bit more relaxed. And. While the other garden, the garden that we had in our prior house, was had a very formal feel. This feels very informal, and that's something that I think when you go out in your backyard, you're able to sit at a table and drink your coffee with the morning paper on a Saturday morning with the dog sitting in your lap. It really, it, it just creates a moment that's hard to replicate.
1: Those are beautiful, beautiful moments. Absolutely. How um, how do you actually balance? Like your busy days and um, sort of your personal moments that that I always find interesting and in how people balance that. How does that go?
2: Oh, Aniko, I'm still working on that. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think it's so funny. We have the third place for for uh, you know your home, your work, and your Starbucks at that third place. You have the third wave of coffee uh, that we're in now. I actually like to think of myself as being in the third act of my life, and one of the things that I've said about this third act, where the second act was about raising my children with my wife and having my career really blossom and grow, I think about my third act as trying to find that harmony between what I do in terms of my goals for myself personally, with and professionally, but also how I balance that with a really healthy um, relationships with my wife, with the my uh, children with my larger family, with my friends, and with the community. And that's something that I truly am working on really hard to get right, because I don't know that I've found it yet. But I do know how important it is to have those moments, and I really do believe that having a cup of coffee with somebody builds a relationship that I don't know that you can really uh, find a way to do that in a, in a I don't know, more congenial fashion. So having lunch is one thing, but it, you're eating and you're kind of going back and forth, and it's noisy. When you have a cup of coffee, it's just you, the coffee, and and the other person and their coffee, and it's just something that even in a Starbucks that's got, you know, dozens of people and it's loud, it still feels very, very much like you're making that connection. Or you're in the backyard and you're sitting quietly reading your paper next to my wife. It's it's no matter how you do it, it just feels like something that's that's going to be and should be a cornerstone of how I build the third act of my, my life.
1: Well, your first and second acts have been tremendous and certainly your third act will be just as tremendous, I'm sure. And even the fact that you took your time to, to meet with us today and share your special coffee stories um, is, is just really kind of you and indicative of um, how you value some of these moments, and thank you for sharing them with our listeners. How would you, Stephen, we're, we're getting close to maybe wrapping up, but how would you say the future of coffee is going to look in, in a few years?
2: I think, well, one thing that's really fascinating is that the consumption of soda is in decline for the first time in decades in the U.S., and I think that is some, a, a very powerful notion, that people are really focused on coffee or, or other you know, water-based drinks, and soda is kind of retreating. I think that tells you something really powerful, which is that coffee is not going to go in decline again like it did back in the, the 70s and 80s. I do think it is um, going to maintain this lead over other beverages. Of course, tea is always something that is important, but it's always in, in America, the coffee culture is more important than the tea culture. So where do I think coffee is going? I think it's going to continue to be that piece of the story when it comes to building relationships. And if you read anything about what it uh, takes to to create happiness in your own personal life, the first thing they talk about is the importance of relationships. It's not power. It's certainly not money. And it's certainly not material things, unless you count your pour-over device and your Nespresso machine, which are very important to me. It's (laughs) really about relationships. And those relationships, the way that you can um, power those relationships and nurture them and enrich them is over a good cup of coffee.
1: Well, and we just are so grateful to you, Stephen, for... To sharing your favorite coffee stories and the rise of coffee culture in America, we are so grateful to you. It's fascinating to learn from you and listen. And also, thank you for building a special relationship with our listeners by being here today. We're really grateful to you. Um, have thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. So thank you again. We've talked a lot about the history of coffee in America, the rise of coffee culture today, how Starbucks came on, and even those early days of Folgers where you wanted to Own the Morning (laughs) and the Folgers little jingle that Stephen kindly shared with us. This has been such fun to share and we look forward to continuing our conversation with our listeners at MyFavoriteCoffeeStory.com Please send us an email please send questions we love to hear from you and we love sharing favorite coffee stories. Um, Of course we are also celebrating this special time together by offering uh, an Kona gift of um, 15% off one of our um, bags. And so you can always go to Anikona.com and put in our MFCSS15 code. We would be delighted if we could share a little Anikona with you. And of course, we are so happy that we could share these favorite coffee stories together. Thank you again to Stephen. Thank you listeners for joining us today. We look forward to... Uh, continuing My Favorite Coffee Stories next week on Tuesday. Thanks again. Aloha.
0: Thank you for taking an hour out of your busy week to join us on My Favorite Coffee Story. Please tune in again for another edition with your host, Aniko Samoji, next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, we hope you'll have a relaxing week.